Hey everyone, welcome to the Sports Tales podcast. And in this episode, we'll be covering football and tennis both. And to join me for this episode, I have Shubham again. Hey Shubham. Hey man, thank you for having me again. Great, great to have you here. And I think uh, this has been an interesting week, or I would say the past couple of weeks, considering what has happened in Euros. And that's where we want to start our today's episode. And I think the one episode where we discussed the group stages, right? I think um, more so our predictions came true for the teams which were supposed to, let's say, uh, come out of the groups, right? We weren't sure that time at who would be third and how that particular stage would look like. But I think if I look at the 16 teams which have now made it into the knockout stages, we could see that these 16 were kind of favorites to make it through. But but the one thing where, let's say, the group stages might have surprised us is how these teams have individually performed, right? Where our reasoning for, let's say, uh, the outcome of group stages might have been different, but the outcome was the same. If I, if I look at these knockout matches, right, I can clearly see a distinction between, uh, let's say, the top matches, which I can see here, which are worthy of a final in itself, and then the other matches, right, where we could say that uh, you will have clear favorites heading into that particular match. So let's first discuss those matches and then we'll come to the, let's say, he- uh, heavyweight clashes altogether. So the first which I can uh, look at is Italy versus Austria. And the interesting element which I was looking at that Italy is currently on one of the largest unbeaten runs in their national football team history. They haven't, uh, let's say, lost in the last 30 matches or so. And the interesting fact is they haven't considered any goal in the last 10 matches altogether. So even though we were critical of Italy's defense, right, that uh, they have the pairing of Bonucci and Cellini, uh, let's say, who have all this experience, uh, let's say, uh, with them, but the youthfulness of the other teams might hurt them altogether. But then if you look at their opponent, which is Austria, Austria has actually failed to score in the last four, in the four of the last six matches, right? So it becomes a kind of, uh, let's say, easier job for Italy because they have the team which is not able to score goals. And then if you see Italy altogether, right, we didn't expect them to be that prolific altogether in the attacking department. How they've been able to get past the group stages was very impressive, right, from their opener. So do you think Austria causing any upset here, if I can call it that? Uh, I don't think so, but... The, the great thing about Italy this year was while we discussed about how you know, they have an aging defense and we didn't really know how they might hold up and, and we still haven't really seen them uh, being put against one of the better attacking sides. But we always expect Italy to be defensively, at least even if they're old or whatever, they'll always be defensively astute right, to an extent because that's their game. What surprised me the most is their attacking game, which has never, even in the days of, you know, people like Pirlo and all, it was never prolific. They would sort of always win those games, edge edge those games by one goal to nil or two goals to nil. But you, I don't know, going into the uh, Euros, I had never foreseen that Italy will score three goals in their first game, three in their second or whatever. Yeah, that for me was a surprising thing. And yeah, I don't see how Austria will sort of pose any kind of threat to Italy. If I, if I look at the next one, right, again, uh, of probably the same caliber here is France versus Switzerland. 
Now, interesting that France have been one of the favorites in the tournament, right? But I might say that the perception would have changed looking at how France have played uh, their last two matches, specifically drawing against Hungary. And interesting element was that France surprisingly has never won against Hungary in the Euros. They have they have played five matches and they've either lost or either drawn it, drawn the match. So I think they kind of came with that. Uh, I would say uh, added mental pressure altogether into the match, which uh, we saw how they performed all together, where they were trailing and then they, uh, let's say, equalized. But if you look at Switzerland as well, right? Switzerland also carries this record with themselves where they have never gone beyond last 16. So we have mm-hmm. the, I would say, the favorites at the start of the tournament and still in, in the eyes of many against a team which has never went past this stage. So I expect France to maybe show what they're capable of and finally emerge or show their World Cup winning traits altogether and get past this stage. Do you agree there? Yeah, I completely agree with you on that. Uh, I don't see how Switzerland can really pose a threat on France as of now. Uh, given the kind of games that Switzerland has played in the group stages, you'll see that they drew against San Poké, Wales side. They've won against that Turkey side. But the one time that they had to face a really good team in Italy, they actually just crumbled into a team in defeat. So I don't see how they can sort of pose a threat on France. But at the same time, I feel this is a very important game for France. Going into the knockout stages now, it's good for them that they have a game like Switzerland where they can sort of get their rhythm back in, uh, which we have, which we saw in the group stages towards the tail end. It sort of gives a little, right? They had that amazing win against Germany where everybody, everybody's, you know, ideas of them probably winning the thing uh, all over was sort of confirmed, but then we saw that draw against Hungary and that hell of a game against Portugal, which also I won't really say that France really, you know, dominated that game or anything like that. So I feel this is a very important game for France where they could get back into that groove, that winning mentality, and that will help them going into the quarters, semis, or the finals if they get there or whatever. But I feel, yeah, that way, that is how the French team, I suppose, will be looking at this to get their momentum back. I think the next one, which can also be a bit fascinating, which is again a a kind of battle of underdogs, is Sweden versus Ukraine. Interesting enough that Sweden hasn't lost any match in 2021 uh, so far. And if you look at Ukraine's journey, uh, let's say in the group stages, they were able to manage and let's say qualify for the knockout stages despite losing two matches in the group. So I think that Ukraine would come under serious pressure here in this particular game because Sweden has played well. I feel that Sweden should have the advantage going into this match and should be able to come out as the true winners. But do you think Ukraine, uh, maybe Ukraine have us have to say something about it? I don't see that happening, to be honest. And I, to really, to be honest, I didn't really follow Ukraine as, as much. But coming to Sweden, I feel Sweden could be that next, you know, that dark horse that we've been looking for. And they look like, uh, look that part. Even though I, I, I won't say they've really faced some of, some of the good, better teams, the only half-decent team that they've probably faced 
was Spain, where they drew it, but Spain have been pathetic this year so far. Uh, Slovakia, one nil against Slovakia was okay. The only concern that I see here, which I sort of was a little more confident upon uh, after the first two games, was that Sweden was at least, even if they had just scored one goal in the two games, they conceded none. But going into that game against Poland, they ended up conceding two, where they did score three. So that that game sort of switched the entire you know perception that I had on Sweden. But I still feel they can be that one team that can create that one upset, right? So if like, it seems like they'll end up in the quarterfinals for sure. And if they end up in the quarterfinals, uh, who are they playing? Um, hmm. England or Germany, the winners of that match. Oh, yeah. So, okay. So, yeah, I don't know. But I can see that they do have the potential of, you know, that one upset maybe. They can potentially, looking at this side of the bracket, right? They can potentially be mm-hmm. someone like a Wales. Uh, if you look at 2016 uh, Euros, right? They can have a similar journey and maybe reach the semi-final itself. But it again, but again is a tough road because they have... If they move ahead, move past this particular game, they have a very tough opponent in the next stage, which will come to. But I think yeah, Sweden uh, should, let's say, uh, carry the form which uh, they have as of now and then uh, should win this game. I think next one is also interesting if you look at uh, Netherlands versus uh, Czech Republic. Uh, Netherlands have a very interesting start altogether where they've actually, they've at least scored two goals in every match in their last 10 matches. Which seems surprising because when you look at Netherlands, you do not see uh, any, let's say, so-called stars in their attacking lineup. Yet collectively, they are able to do well. And if you look at Czech Republic, they have only a single goal scorer, uh, Sheik, who has actually scored all the three goals. One which can probably be the goal of the tournament or even uh, go on to the, win the Puskas Award altogether. So I think uh, it's very interesting to see that. Uh, there's one team which is collectively doing very well and there's one team who's actually who has been dependent on only a single player to get all the uh, goal scoring options so i think netherlands should get past the czech republic easily if they're able to neutralize shit or any other possible goal scoring threat do you think czech republic doing any wonders here no i don't and i uh, again like if it happens it's a massive upset because I understand, I know that we, we went into this Euros not really, you know, uh, rating Netherlands as such. But if you look at the team in general, you'll realize they have a decently strong midfield and a strong backline. Like the players playing at the highest level who are part of that midfield and that backline. So I feel, but yeah, I agree. They, like, they've played in a way where they've been greater than in some of their parts. And yeah, they've basically played as a team, right? Which is what has worked for them. And yeah, I feel they can go through. While I don't see Netherlands going too far uh, here. And and the last one, uh, again, which is kind of the opening round of the knockout stages, which is Wales versus Denmark. And they've had very interesting run in this particular group stage. If you look at Wales, uh, we did predict that uh, if Wales, let's lose out, it would be on themselves. Because... Uh, Wales is a team which should it, which should have at least come second, right? And then they were able to pull that off. They managed to come second in the group. And same goes with Denmark. Even with that horrific incident uh, with Christian Eriksen they had in the first match and they lost that match against Finland. 
but then the way they played the last match against russia right which arguably one of the best matches in the group stage as we saw the way they were able to score all those goals i think denmark has a moment has momentum here heading into this match right and denmark can prove why they are so highly ranked uh, in the fifa rankings against wales but in wales you have someone like gareth bale you have all a few star players who can do really well so i think here i have i would say i have a different opinion than what most of the people are predicting i think wales can do something here wales can come out of the, uh, this particular match and move into the next stage uh, what are your thoughts on this so no no i think i agree with you here starting with denmark i feel that final game versus russia was probably if not in terms of quality but in terms of purely just footballing emotions that was probably the best thing that has happened in this tournament so far not just having to sort of you know come back from that horrific incident was fine but to end up scoring so many goals that you have that goal advantage versus goal difference was just absolutely brilliant having said that i also agree with you on the fact that wales probably just edge over uh, denmark at this moment probably probably because of the amount of experience they have and i feel aaron ramsey Gareth Bale, uh, the two of them will carry this team, and people like Daniel James and you know Daniel James around him who have who has the pace and has actually been doing well. Surprisingly, he's done really well this tournament so far. I feel yes, Wales have that edge over Denmark in in this type. Now I think we come to the heavyweight fixtures all together, right? And we have three mouth-watering games. We look at the first one, which is Belgium versus Portugal. I mean. how these two teams have had a contrasting run so far right if you look at belgium they have been dominant throughout uh, i think our perception of belgium was that their chances seem worse i mean it could not have been far from wrong altogether i think how lukaku is playing up front how he is pairing up with someone like an hazard or and de bruyne i think that is simply impressive to watch how they are so how they are such a massive threat on uh, let's say while going forward is just brilliant to watch and if you look at portugal right i think their reliance on their star player on the biggest player ronaldo is still let's say very evident you cannot uh, let's say see any other player stepping forward i think his pairing up with diego jota bernardo silva and bruno fernandes is working fine for them so far but the one thing which we discussed right i think uh, we briefly covered that their defense is still not solid altogether they have a good central defensive pairing of ruben diaz and pepe but you could see scoring uh, them conceding those four goals against germany them conceding all those goals penalties and goals against uh, france even in the game against hungary they uh, weren't any good uh, right up till the 80th minute and then they scored quick three goals you can easily say that it's never uh, safe to bet against ronaldo in any match right even at this particular age he's creating all these records of joint highest scorer in international football highest scorer in the final stages of the euros i think he's still the leading goal scorer in this tournament no matter how those goals have come so is as that one man which would worry belgium because he has that brilliant record in the knockout stages of euros as well but i think overall belgium is a better team i think if they're able to stick to their game they should be able to get past portugal 
the this is an interesting fixture and a really tense one to watch what are your thoughts on this see uh with portugal portugal had a very weird group stage in this they started with winning that game then getting battered by germany and a germany side that we weren't really sure were that good after their first game but they got battered by germany even though like for that game i would say it wasn't portugal messing up as much as germany just being really amazing and then they had that 2-2 random match game uh with france which ended up being 2-2 i feel they 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 aren't really a team as yet they do have some good players in that starting 11 as well but they aren't really a team as well i i, I feel actually a little tired about saying this but i don't i haven't seen bruno fernandes really playing that well as well as we expected him to i feel bernardo silva and diego jota have played better and ronaldo is obviously up there right? for me the biggest problem with uh, portugal has been that deep line midfield and they they i think they've been very confused as to who do we play there do we play william carvalho there for uh, a better protection i don't see the defense being as bad i i, I still feel that the defense can hold up uh, uh including both their uh, full backs as well but i feel that deep line midfield which is the defensive midfield position is where they're sort of lacking right now or I, i won't say they're lacking as much as they're really confused out as to how do we play that position and or who do we play in that position. so i think i feel that's that's the whole uh in their armor right now coming to belgium like i i feel the only uh, change in the armor initially was the fact that will de bruyne end up playing and how soon can he come in but <laughs> they've just basically shown us all why belgium is number 1 on that ranking table right and eden hazard also now coming into the team eden hazard being integrated now de bruyne back in the squad Lukaku playing the way he's playing I feel yeah definitely Belgium has all probably is one of the top favorite to go all the way in this tournament uh, a few players who have actually surprised me from both the teams apart from the uh, the obviously the important players we mentioned are Renato Sanchez for Portugal I believe uh, if you look at how he has been overlooked right and how he was uh, maybe called Uh, a overhyped player i think uh, he's still proving his point in this particular stage i think uh, he has been brilliant going forward and linking with the midfield and the attack and the same goes for doku in belgium i think uh, i i was just watching the uh, the finland game where he started right and i think the chances which he was creating right uh, the aggression which he had going forward where either he was taking a shot or he was uh, let's say providing that uh opportunity for someone else to score i think that was just brilliant that gives both these teams an additional player to depend upon or to let's say save the match any of these players even if you remember how portugal won their euro finals in 2016 right where there was an unexpected winner uh, unexpected game winner i think we can expect a similar thing from these teams uh, heading into the knockout stages but i think that is something we'll have to wait and see how they perform no i agree uh, i agree that we'll have to wait for the game to really see what happens while belgium go into this match as favorites portugal can always surprise you uh coming back to renato sanchez right he's been like a 
there's been a lot of talk around him and what happened after that initial you know hype that came in during the last euros and then everything sort of tailed off from there on his uh you know his transfer to bayern munich didn't really work well but i feel he things are picking up for him with what he did with lil this year uh, winning the league where it was always psc winning it i think that has given him some amount of confidence i think coming to the second interesting one before we cover the biggest match i think in the group stage as well of now uh, i'm looking at croatia versus spain and this is a stay this is i would say uh, in terms of the brand value is the teams have this is a this is a big clash right but how they performed has been underwhelming i think we didn't see the true spain on true croatia until the very last match in the group stages if you see croatia they were absolutely brilliant i mean the the goals they scored right that out of foot volley from modric that header from perisic i think these are the players we say that uh, would have to step up for croatia to do anything good and they did in the final match and even with the likes of spain right the amount of penalties they have been missing the amount of goal scoring i would say clear goal scoring chances they have been missing how let's say under confident they look while they try to let's possess the ball or score a goal i think these teams are not at their best form and i think this would be a very nervy match considering that both the teams would not be sure how do we proceed as they have not yet seen maybe the best which both the teams can produce but i believe croatia would be able to step up their game because uh, i feel croatia has had a much impressive uh, group stage rather compared to spain altogether so and even the last match which they had so i think croatia should be able to take this one but do you think spain uh, bring you all their experience and then doing something about it i don't know i have i have been fairly disappointed by how spain have played so far and they haven't really looked like a cohesive team they haven't any uh, like they haven't really looked like a team that has any kind of confidence while we if you look at the last game you do see five goals going in but if you look at those goals you'll see one of them was and two of them were actually own goals and one of them was scored by one of their defenders right so up front they've really been lacking right and to top it all they've also missed a few penalties so i don't know i don't see i don't feel morata is has really deserved his spot as of now i feel ferran torres might come in and could be uh, you know somebody who's leading the line but yeah i have i have absolutely no confidence in spain as of now in terms of croatia uh croatia has still even though they haven't really performed at the greatest level they still look the team which has a little more cohesion when it comes to comparing it them to spain a little more cohesion and the fact that they have modric sitting in the center of the midfield and his power to absolutely change the face of the game is something that will really bother spain spain right now look like a team that really play on whatever momentum they have during the the game right and that is something that modric is really skillful with just breaking people's momentum just stopping the pace of the game keeping it slow moving left to right and then going ahead with that inside the box croatia are uh, the favorites here but whichever team goes through from here and if, and 
hopefully we see france meeting them up in the quarter finals the whoever goes up to meet up meet with france will have to really pick up their game uh, to sort of go through from there we have to talk about that goal from modric which was absolutely brilliant and you know he's he's he scored those goals from the by always on the inside of his foot where he, i remember him scoring one in the champions league against manchester united he has he has that in his game but i had never expected such a beautiful outside of the foot from that kind of a distance beautiful goal altogether absolutely and he has a weird record of being the youngest and the oldest goal scorer for uh, croatia in the euros <laughs> so i think uh, that is something which he can certainly be proud of but coming at the biggest match and the one way your team is involved i think which will worry you a bit is england versus germany and i think just to uh, let's say uh, put it out uh, in front of you that germany have won on the last four occasions this team has met and overall as well head to head they just lost to england only once and uh, the one thing which we discuss about england right that they lack the attacking options and we could see that that uh, the only two goals which they scored in the three matches has come to sterling and they haven't looked that well coordinated all together they've been scrappy on that lines but the one thing which worries me the most i think it's not england but it's how germany steps up i think we have seen that uh, tendency from germany that they actually go berserk uh, that sometimes they would be uh, they would have this weird 1-0 or 2-0 uh, matches but then on the other nights they'll simply come out all guns blazing and score four or five goals and have no mercy so i think we never know which germany would step on on any particular day i think the best chance which england has is be compact defensively i think ever since harry maguire has come back uh, they have been great in uh, let's say defending all the threats and you could see that by uh, the number of clean sheets they have they have not considered any goals mm-hmm. so far in the tournament so i think mm-hmm. that gives them hope but you know that you do not win the game 0-0 right someone has to score a goal otherwise it goes to penalties and then you don't know who wins so what are your thoughts as in uh, because euros has been always a strange occasion for england right so and you told that uh, i remember when we discussed last time so uh, how what what level of confidence let's say does your team give you for this match so okay going into the euros before the group stages uh, had ever started if you remember i had sort of i hadn't really given germany a lot of credit and i said that even though in that particular group i said france and portugal would be one and two and then that first game happened and i was like yeah sure definitely but that game with portugal happened and they just like you said right they just come on to the pitch sometimes to get done with the game but sometimes they come on the pitch with that idea of just going berserk they did end up conceding two goals but if we leave that aside i feel germany was controlling that game with a kind of prowess that maybe a club team that has been playing together throughout the year sort of possessed right so yeah it was really scary at the same time england the amount of hopes that i had had with england have sort of dipped a little i would all like i don't know i'm a little confused about how uh, southgate has gone about selecting his teams as well i i understand why harry kane starts every game even though he's not performing because he's harry kane 
but i feel that there could still be changes i still feel somebody like a greelish should play i feel we have underutilized jaden sancho to the extent that it's just laughable i don't know how why he's probably just played what 6 10 minutes he, he came in only once right in the final game that's it. so he's not played more than 6 to 10 minutes in a possible you know 270 minutes which is really weird to me however uh, coming back to this particular game i feel england will be really nervous more nervous as compared to germany will be and i also sort of foresee england trying to change things a little by going with three as a back and uh, you know their wing backs playing higher up i feel that they might just end up doing that let's see i am not really sure but if i had to uh, sort of put a couple of names on the team sheet myself and i would definitely put relish in there from to start the game foden probably even if sancho doesn't start for you i can understand because he you haven't really given him the amount of game time to sort of just go ahead and start a game against him while he does have some inside understanding of the german game i don't know who do you replace don't ask me those questions i know sterling how do you remove sterling the person who scored that only two goals that we scored i don't i i don't see grealish playing uh, in center of the midfield i want him to be coming in from left but i do feel that it's going to be a 343 yeah that is how i'm going in but like i would definitely want england to win but i i'm, I'm a little nervous i think uh, on on the topic which you mentioned of the team selection i think we were also as in not sure right i think for most of the teams you can clearly say that okay who the best 11 are or if not even the best 11 let's say best 12 or 13 and then you know that okay this is how the team would line up but with england you have so many options right and then none of the players have stepped up to that level where you can certainly say that okay this player needs to be in the team for sure and i think that that should worry the fans a bit because heading into the important match if you're not sure who steps up all right who starts and who substituted and who comes on later i think that's a troubling sign uh, we always say that that's a good problem to have but i'm not sure if that's a good problem to have heading into this fixture because you need to have some clarity mm-hmm. considering how germany would line up their uh, particular players and yeah. i think this is the most interesting fixture in this particular knockout stages easily and if you look at this side of the bracket right i think if england is somehow able or germany is somehow able to get past this match if they will to win it they have comparatively easier route to the finals compared to let's say if you see at uh, with the likes of belgium or portugal because if any of them wins they play italy next and then they play the winners of france croatia or spain so i think someone from group f or that particular bracket all together looks at a very tough road to the finals and it can be very it can be uh, easily possible where they have this tough road to the finals and in the final mm. let's say someone of the likes of england or germany is knocked out <laughs> you can possibly mm. face let's say sweden <laughs> netherlands or czech republic or wales and denmark which would be mm. a very interesting underdog story in the final but comparatively an easier one on the paper so i think in that aspect the euros can turn out interesting depending on how the teams step up at any particular point and i think uh, 
we have a good couple of weeks of football interesting ones to see and then be amazed by it i think this euros already stepping up to be much better than the last one for sure i think even anyone who reaches the final semi finals will have definitely more interesting and mouth watering fixtures ahead i think the one thing which we uh, also wanted to cover in this episode i think which also let's say belongs to your or we all together since you have played tennis for uh, at the national level all together in india we want to quickly have a look at the french open and let's say also have a quick preview of the wimbledon and i know you support djokovic right i remember we had that a good conversation during the match you asked yeah. me okay what's the prediction for semi final right and since it was against nadal i was also i would say 99 of those 100 people who <laughs> say that okay nadal in four but we know how it turned out and yeah. looking at how the overall french open has been for uh, djokovic can you say this has been the best grand slam victory for him in his uh, in all the 19 grand slams which he has won this is not the best and definitely one of the top because beating nadal on clay at roland garros is probably one of the most difficult things to do ever that to in a semi final that to after having trailed 5-0 in the first set and i remember you texting me see see what's happening and i told you that it's jokovic waits for the third or fourth game into the second set and then you will know that is what that is what jokovic does basically that is what he does he he waits it out he like he starts slow and but the second set is where he starts dominate and once he starts dominating once he's got you know once he's got that twinkle in his eyes then then i don't i, I like i don't know like i don't see it. like you can just look at him on the court and you know that it has happened where it's going to be jokovic through and through from here and that is what happened in the finals as well right when i remember so a friend of mine had come over who is essentially a federer fan so ends up hating jokovic a lot so he was supporting tsipas and it seems like tsipas had the game in the first two sets it seems like he will just take it to uh, uh, you know uh, to the end and he had that confidence that body language that said yeah i have the game in hand but then again that still happened that slip happened and you could see that <laughs> twinkle in their eyes sort of trans- got transferred from sitipas onto jokovic and then then you knew like once once like you with jokovic that's the thing you look at him on the court you could probably you could have in, you, you could have missed the most missed most of the game but based on his body language and how he like his eyes tell you that he's going to win this from here on and that is what happened so yeah coming back to your question was it his best i wouldn't say like outright best because maybe but yeah but it definitely shares uh, it with a couple of other occasions on the top the best for me in this tournament was that third set with nadal that was just a crazy set and then the two of them played probably one of the best sets of tennis that i've ever seen i i agree there some recency bias there but oh what a set of tennis that was break after break after break and not because they couldn't serve or their first serves weren't landing or all of that it was purely just fantastic tennis the other yeah. thing that i that really excited me in this tournament 
was I had gone into this tournament obviously supporting Djokovic, but I was hoping for Medvedev to do really well. I sort of look at him as you know the next big thing after the big three uh, retire or whatever. But the guy, like he, cool, he lost a game which he could have lost. Nothing, not, not that bad. But Sissipas has sort of impressed me a lot. Like he always knew this about Sissipas that he's also somebody who never give us gives up. That's the that's the thing in tennis, right? In tennis, there's something called as a tilt. I feel if you talk to anybody who's played tennis and if you use that word tilt, they'll understand what I'm talking about. So when you're playing tennis on a uh, and you're on that court, sometimes you could you could have won the first set, you could be dominating the second set, but all of a sudden something happens, you know, a couple of points here or there that you know a couple of unforced errors and that tilt happens. If you even if you look at the semi-finals with Zverev, he won the first two sets comfortably, lost the next two sets. Going into that final set, Zverev was probably the favorite, right? But Sissipas came back, he fought again, and then won. When I looked at him this in this tournament, I sort of saw maybe one of the chief contenders of who I'll support once. Uh, why why I would go ahead and rate, let's say, this as one of the best victories for Djokovic is because of, let's say, three reasons altogether. One is mm-hmm. how he played against Nadal, right? And I would believe mm-hmm. na- that particular match of performance now sets a new benchmark for how you have to perform at clay, right? Because earlier you had to think of the ways how to beat Nadal. But now you have a framework mm-hmm. for it, which Djokovic showed you that. You have to play a near-perfect tennis. There's no other way, right? There's no... Uh, option for you to, let's say, slow down or relax, even for a single game altogether, right? I think, and we have never seen Nadal so out of sort on uh, sort of options on clay court, right? Have you ever seen mm-hmm. Nadal dig that deep, right, in his uh, repository, and then mm-hmm. still be out of options? That what does he do against Djokovic on that day? I think we've never seen Nadal altogether struggle that much on clay court, and he hasn't. Uh, we don't. Mm-hmm. We don't have that many examples altogether because he has lost only three times in the French Open history. So I think that is See, one I agree. of the reasons. I'll, I'll go. Yeah, definitely. I'll go a little technical on why that happened. If you look at Djokovic's game against Nadal, that wasn't very Djokovic's natural game. He was playing more like Nadal than he was playing like himself. You know, one of the things that Nadal is best known for is the amount of uh, spin that he has on his ball, amount of top spin that he has on his shots. Djokovic this time was, if not matching him, but almost touching him in terms of uh, the amount of spin that he had on his balls, balls and the amount of top spin that he was trying to get out of it, which is what basically made that game what it made it, right? I think Nadal never expected Djokovic to come out with a completely different, uh, I wouldn't even say tactic, a completely different technique. So, which was which was something that was really amazing, and which is what I feel sort of had slight dent in his technique when he came into the finals. Because if you look at the first two sets in the final game, Djokovic was really struggling because it seemed like he was somewhere in between the flat balls that he usually plays and the looping topspin balls that reach the baseline, and he was just he just ended up. Sending loopy balls into no man's land, and why he was struggling in those first weeks. 
I think I think that gives a brilliant insight into uh, let's say the switch which they can turn on or off in any particular game, right? And that too, let's say not before game or after game, between game when they have to let's say when the game is on the line and they have to win it. And the second reason why, which coming again to why this is uh, the most impressive Grand Slam win uh, for Djokovic in my opinion is uh, that I haven't seen any one of the big three right have. Uh, the semi-final which they had and then have the final and then win it all because let's say the recent which I could see is 2019 Wimbledon altogether where we never expected Federer to reach finals, right? We never expected him to get past Nadal on grass court, right? Even though that's his territory, right? But that is Nadal in front of him and we know what's the head-to-head. So even having that particular match and then even against Djokovic, having two match points and then losing it all, right? So the eventual outcome was a loss for him. But in Djokovic's case, beating Nadal, then being two sets down and then winning it all, I think all those factors combined. And there was no excuse for, uh, let's say, any Nadal fans, right? Saying that Nadal wasn't fit. Uh, If Nadal wasn't fit, he wouldn't have taken that final uh, lead in the first set, right? There's no excuse because... In 2016 or in 2009 against Sodeling, you would have said that. That okay, Nadal wasn't at his yeah. best. But this mm-hmm. wasn't that year. And now we know that Nadal is beatable on clay because of this one particular performance. Which we do not say for any of the big three on any other court, right? Maybe Djokovic on Australian Open. But Federer mm-hmm. too is beatable on grass court. We have seen it all these times in the last decade. Yeah, but we never saw something like this. Uh, from someone facing Nadal on a clay court. And that too, you know, semi-final. You could expect that, okay, uh, someone would give a competition to Nadal in the final. But never in a semi-final altogether. No, I agree. And But, but then, look, look at it, right? Apart from Djokovic and Australian Open, there were just two dynasties in the current uh, setup. There was definitely the biggest dynasty of them all was Nadal at French Open. But... Federer on grass was also a similarly uh, powerful dynasty, which if you if you look at it, the people who, the one person I feel who's broken that dynasty has to be Djokovic. Like even today, if Federer goes on grass, he'll be, we, we still hold him favorite against everyone else, be it Sissipas, be it Medvedev, be it, uh, you know, Zverev, be it Dominic Thiem, whoever, we'll still hold Federer as the favorite, but the moment he's against Djokovic, I feel Djokovic has just turned it on on both of them. Yeah. And I think uh, over the period of these last 20 years or more, so um, as in close to 20 years now, I think we all, we know all of these facts that they won 59 out of the last 71 Grand Slams, right? Uh, That uh, any one of these three are clear favorite heading into the territory, heading into any Grand Slam. And I think They've also started respecting, uh, let's say, the other opponent in the sense that uh, you see Nadal is already withdrawn from Wimbledon, right? Uh, because mm-hmm. he knows that uh, he doesn't have, Wimbledon hasn't been kind to him, right? And he doesn't have the best chance, so rather he should focus on something like a US Open and come back to his best. Even looking at Federer, Federer has had all these, uh, I would say, surgery issues and he won his match in the French Open, but he had to withdraw because he could also foresee that given the condition he is in, he cannot, let's say, look to compete against Djokovic or Nadal in this court and then ruin his chances for maybe a comfortable run at Wimbledon. 
uh, a court where he is so comfortable that he might not need to practice any steps up and is still comf- uh, he is still favorite to go into semis or into finals so i think uh, given that they have accomplished or they set up those boundaries or the territories i think uh, where we are standing right now is federer and nadal at 20 a piece in terms of grand slams and djokovic at 90 i think only this particular fact gives me the reason that both federer and nadal can still let's say get one or two more because they now choose pick and choose the tournaments they want to play and same goes for djokovic i think few other tournaments where he's still outright favorite like wimbledon or where such as australian open and he still has the uh, let's say the age factor with him that is still the youngest of all these three and then uh, he's he's the most fit when we let's say look at this uh, look at these three players so i think considering that uh, we definitely have a very interesting race i would say to the top here and i i see that the uh, wimbledon is that tournament where we now see all those three, all these three players come at the same level with 20 grand slam each do you see that happening for djokovic obviously like i'm i'm fairly confident i'm not saying he is going to win there have been times when i am that confident as well but like i i am fairly confident that djokovic is going to uh, make it 20 this wimbledon and then we go into us open at with both all three of them at 20 and where you say you still see federer and nadal picking up maybe one or two each i feel that among the two of them then among the two of them they'll probably pick up two more that's about it. and i feel jokovic is going to win another at least four to five titles if combined federer and nadal only are able to win one or two then jokovic can easily mm-hmm. win four or five because if i see oh. the young guys they still lack that experience and temperament altogether because if i look at uh, jokovic federer and nadal right there is no situation which would be new to them on a tennis court right which they have not fa- seen all together i mean these guys have faced each other in semi finals and finals for on so many occasions that that's already a resume enough for any of the other players all together to have right and then yeah. they still keep doing this they still keep uh, let's say uh, outscoring each other or outperforming each other and that's that's a that's a sight to behold all together but but one thing i want to check with you here right and then uh, i'll set the context behind it that over the years mm-hmm. what has happened with federer and nadal rivalry right and then this is very mm-hmm. similar to what we see with messi ronaldo with all the other rabbit rivalries mm-hmm. we have right there's always these fans right and they have this weird logic for saying that okay federer can't win on clay court nadal can't win on grass mm-hmm. court federer doesn't mm-hmm. have an olympic gold medal nadal has a better mm-hmm. record all those things which is really weird right because uh yeah. there's a there's a mutual respect between all these three and then we all know that there cannot be a fair comparison because all of these have done so well on so many occasions that uh it's just nitpicking all together but just one thing in my opinion if given the chance that let's say djokovic has or given two options he has where he can do both mm-hmm. but let's say if he has to choose between winning a gold at this olympics or winning mm-hmm. at wimbledon do you think he should prefer wimbledon uh, olympic gold more Hmm. Interesting question. Do you think there's a valid logic or reasoning behind the fact that someone would say, "Okay, prioritize," and that someone can be me also prioritize Olympic gold because 
you might not get another chance at it again you might get another chance at wimbledon olympic gold is something which someone like federer also let's say would have that particular regret of not winning one so <laughs> very difficult question to answer here but uh, yeah i i am hoping he's going to win both but anyway if he wins that olympic gold right i think then there's a very strong argument for him against mm-hmm. nadal altogether because mm-hmm. that, because that because from nadal fans i've seen them use this argument countless on countless occasions i think that he has that olympic gold he has that olympic gold he has the uh, he's that golden slam altogether and mm-hmm. uh, so i think that is something which if let's say djokovic is able to match then djokovic's mm-hmm. resume looks better because he has pretty much won all those atp finals and atp major tournaments right he ha- he's the first player now in the open era to win all the grand slam at least twice which we haven't okay. seen even federer or nadal uh, able to com- mm. accomplish and i think he still has uh, the age factor as we discussed right the fitness with him his game plays imp- is still impeccable that uh, on on his best day you cannot defeat him because his stamina his court coverage everything the the amount of his backhand i think backhand is something which we usually maybe attribute to as a weakness right which is let's say not a strong right. shot for anyone even for federer with his mm-hmm. one hand backhand even for nadal but he is someone mm-hmm. who can win points on backhand his he is damn accurate with his backhand altogether that he can you put a coin on the uh, court and he would land the ball on that coin given all these factors i believe he will surpass both federer and nadal for let's say the highest number of grand slams and that might be the reason he is he would still remain one of the most disliked or hated figure or the yeah. or one of the controversial ones amongst the federal fans altogether that uh, once you beat your let's say favorite right or once you beat your idol then there's all sort of hate which comes into the scenario like if given the choice let's prioritize uh, you know the olympic gold for this other sake of this conversation but that also means that somebody like a federer gets the chance to get to 21 the only thing that works for is the fact that then he completes one of those very rare golden slams now if i look at the wimbledon right which starts coming monday we again look at the possibility since nadal has withdrawn from this tournament we look at the possibility of a nadal and federer sorry a djokovic and a federer final and i think uh mm-hmm. the brackets also uh, they they end up opposite brackets so it's highly likely mm-hmm. but they also have some tum- tough matches on route to the final i think if I, if i look at federer uh he could probably face uh richard gasquet in the second round followed by medvedev in the quarter finals and then zverev in the semi finals djokovic will face gail monfils in the fourth round Rublev in the quarterfinals and Tsitsipas in the semifinals. Before, if everything works fine, before the big final between Djokovic and Federer. So, do you think not? Let's say about Djokovic because with Djokovic we still, uh, let's say, will keep him favorite in all those matches up till the final. But do you think Federer, looking at how the last one or two years has been for him, will be able to reach the finals this time? like I, like like i was just saying right he still against anybody else he's still the favorite and that too on grass he definitely is 
for even Djokovic, for somebody like a Djokovic as well, it's going to be difficult. If he meets Tsitsipas uh, in the semi-finals, that's going to be a very difficult thing. I feel uh, Gail Monfils and Rublev, these kind of players, will probably go through. Uh, similarly, for Roger Federer, I feel he could, he, he'll probably be able to go past people like, uh, you know, uh, Richard Casket and those kind of people. Where the things will get uh, interesting is, and which is where I feel Federer probably has a slightly more difficult route to the finals is those two games, those two possible games with Medvedev and Sverre. And that is where it's going to be a little tricky for Fedra. I think Zverev is also a brilliant player, but I rate Medvedev really highly. So, yeah, I do see like difficulties in both their past parts, but these are the three games I suppose which will sort of define what happens. The Tsitsipas Djokovic game, the Medvedev Fedra game, and if he goes through, then Medvedev Zverev or the Medvedev or the Federer's Zverev, and if Federer doesn't go through, then the Medvedev Zverev game. These three are going to be the most exciting games of the tournament. I would definitely hope for Federer to be there at the finals, and then Djokovic showing Federer again that uh, who's who's the worst. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I can see you hoping for that. I think we have a great couple of weeks ahead of us. Uh, seeing we have Wimbledon as well as Euros in parallel to look out for. I think this has been an interesting discussion. I suppose both the finals are on the same day, right? I think both so, Both yeah. the Wimbledon yeah. and the Euro finals are on the same, which is the 12th of July. Yeah. Uh, I expect uh, if, let's say, the Wimbledon final doesn't get stretched out like the last edition, because uh, if I remember the, at the last edition, we had the Cricket World Cup <laughs> parallelly happening. So <laughs> that was also something where uh, your remote was hot. <laughs> so I think uh, I would expect, uh, let's say, them to uh, care about us fans and then wrap up the finals fast so that we can switch to Euros. But yeah, I think that should be an interesting uh, evening altogether. But yeah, I think great, great talking to you, Shubham, again on, uh, I think, these two events. I think we'll, uh, we'll wait and see how the remaining matches unfold and how the Wimbledon shapes up. So everyone who was listening to us, uh, thank you for joining in. Have a great day and we'll see you in the next episode.